Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Hello, it's good to be with you and greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, like uh, myself, uh, find ourselves in a little bit different circumstances this day, and um, I just want you to know that we're doing fine, and our family's doing fine, and I hope you are as well. One thing we know for sure is always true, is that God is not isolated. He is in control of all things. He is with us through all things, even when we don't understand why things happen, or how the world works, or how God moves and decides to do things. Well, that brings us to our topic today because we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes was written as an honest perspective on the world by someone who just didn't understand everything that was going on around him. The author of the book of Ecclesiastes, we know, is Solomon, uh, in the Hebrew word Koheleth, or one who speaks in an assembly, and he's passing on wisdom probably from the later days in his life, uh, and through his kingship and everything, all the things that he's learned about life and uh, and what he has not learned. Some things are still a puzzlement for him. And uh, you may remember that he expresses that in the word vanity. All is vanity. Some Bibles translate that meaningless. But it comes from the word vapor or breath. And it has carries with it the idea of futility or uh, uh, something that can't really be understood. Man's inability to comprehend life as he sees it. He uses that word 38 times in the book, so it's a very important word. He uses it more than he uses the word God, which is only used 37 times. And then there's the word under the sun that we find, which which refers to his viewpoint as a human being under the sun or just as he sees it on earth. And that phrase is used 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And our passage today from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 16 we're going to run into those phrases. In fact, that word vanity, as it's translated in the New King James, is uh, actually bookends for the passage. It starts in verse 4, and that word is also found in verse 16. It's used a total of four times in our passage. So the author is continuing to express some futility. And here it has to do with the idea of work. And so I've titled the message, Making Your Work Worthwhile. Now, isn't that a little bit ironic that that's where our series falls on a situation like today where we went overnight from record low unemployment to record high unemployment? Who would have thought two months ago we would be facing this kind of situation because of the pandemic around the world? And so why am I talking about work? Well, I would have spoken of it as a normal Part of life, and we can still look at it that way, but for many, uh, we are looking at it through a different lens, maybe with new eyes of appreciation for it, uh, because of what the author Solomon says about work and its part in our lives today. So I want to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 16 with you. Before I do, I want to read a quote from an older article in Time magazine, which is kind of prescient if you compare it to today's situation. The article was called Ready, Set, Relax, and uh, the author said, 
Years of multitasking and workaholism have left Americans across the economic and geographic spectrum feeling exhausted. In his book, Work to Live, The Guide to Getting a Life, journalist Joe Robinson offers both anecdotal and statistical evidence of rising incidences of burnout, depression, and divorce caused by overwork as 80% of men and 62% of women put put in more than 40 hours a week on the job. And then he goes on to cite that one poll revealed that although 60% of Americans felt pressured to work too much, more than 80% wished for more family time and that 52% of them would take less money to get it. Sounds like we got what we wish for. He goes on, Americans are reaching a breaking point. And he quotes an author of the book, Affluenza, written originally in 2001, revised in 2014 a book that criticizes materialism and overconsumption. And that author said, what the country needs, he says, is a day off. So he organized the first national Take Back Your Time day scheduled for October 24th. That was some years ago. Aren't those words foretelling of what we're experiencing today? We need time off work. I think God thought that maybe we needed to pause a little bit and reflect on the situation of work today as well. I don't know how to explain what's going on around us today. And that's the whole point of our passage is that uh, the author has questions about it and he reflects the uncertainty that some people have. He wants to examine why we work and uh, how important it is for us. Do we work for our needs only or for our wants also? Is it fun for us or do we work because we're in competition with somebody else? And how does work balance with the rest of our life, especially the relationships and the people around us. So the first thing I think we know is that we all have to work. Uh, it's a part of life and we may as well get used to it and, uh, and learn to like it. God put Adam on the earth and told him to get to work in cultivating the garden. We need a healthy and balanced attitude towards work. There can be the extremes that some people go to. One extreme would be laziness. The other extreme would be uh, overworking or workaholism. And we can become a a victim of our own uh, desires or lack of desire. So remember that uh, this passage was written in the context of uh, not really totally understanding uh, how God does things under the sun in this earth. And uh, and also that work is not a curse because he said in chapter two, verse 24, that work is a gift from God and we should celebrate it and we should learn to enjoy life and enjoy work because of that. So let's look and see why he says work can be at times a vanity or futility. In verses four through six, I think what he, the author Solomon is trying to tell us is that we should balance our work. Balance your work. And uh, one way we do that is we don't work to compete with others. In verse four, he says, again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So as he looks at people who are working and toiling in this earth, he sees that they are motivated by envy or a sense of competition. We live in a dog-eat-dog world, and some people apply that to their work. They have a dog-eat-dog attitude. 
I don't think the author's condemning work is negative, uh, nor would he condemn uh, a free market system, which I think is a good thing. But we know that it can be abused. And some people in the system can uh, really abuse it by taking advantage of other people for the sake of profit. And their motivations are not good, not just to meet their needs and some of their wants, but just to get ahead of the Joneses. And not just to get ahead of the Joneses, but to leave them in the dust and to crush them along the way. So envy and motivation is not a good attitude. It can lead to pride. It can lead to covetousness, which is the root of many, many sins. And the fact is, there'll always be someone who has more than us. So when will it end? And there'll always be someone who has less than us. Don't work to compete with others. That's not a good motive. In verse 5, he also says, don't be lazy. So there's a balance. He says, the fool holds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Now, folding of the hands, of course, is a figure of speech for being lazy or sleeping. And, um, and the fool who does that, he says, consumes his own flesh, which is a figure of speech, which means uh, he wastes his life. He just ruins his life. Proverbs 24, verses 33 through 34 says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, so shall your poverty come upon, come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. So those who have been lazy have wasted not their time, but their life. And they've let their life just go to ruins around them. Now, we know that America, as many places in the world, have a homeless problem, but our homeless problem is not always due to good things uh, um, uh, or good circumstances, but or bad circumstances. We know that many of the homeless folks um, have mental health issues, and they're doing the best they can under those circumstances. Uh, but we also have, and then there's those who are addicted to drugs, and that causes a lot of homelessness. But we have to say. Uh, is the drugs, does the drugs come from laziness or laziness from the drugs? Or is it just that vicious cycle? Uh, but we all know that there are some in population, just to use them as an example, who would be lazy and they're wasting their life and their life is coming to ruins. But it's not only the homeless that can experience that. It's anybody who refuses to get out of bed in the morning or go to look for some productive work to do. If we just fold our hands, if we spend our day watching television, Aren't we just as guilty of wasting our lives? If we spend our time on Facebook all day long, watching silly videos and or keeping up with friends, or if we play those games on uh, our devices all day, aren't we just wasting time? Now, I know there's time for recreation, but I have found that those, those video games and uh, games on our devices uh, are not worth my time. I always feel like I should be doing something more productive. I don't think I've spent two minutes of my year or any year uh, playing games on my phone. But if you do, I'm not knocking you. I'm just saying, what is the balance? How much time do you spend doing something like that? Uh, can it amount to calling it a waste of time or a waste of life? So some people are lazy because they're just looking to get lucky at some point. But I think we all know that the harder we work, the luckier we get. So don't be lazy. And then on verse six, he goes on to say uh, and tell us that we should work um, for contentment. He says, there is one alone. I'm sorry, verse six. 
Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Now, the opposite of the man who sleeps with his hands folded is the one who's trying to hold on to work with both hands. And uh, he's trying to get every squeeze everything out of his work that he can. And it's like grasping the wind, which is an impossibility. And he says that better than that is quietness in the New King James Version. And that word quietness is a word that refers to contentment. Some Bibles translate it rest. So better than clawing and fighting and pushing our way to the top and, and grabbing on and hoarding uh, things and, and work with two hands, keep one hand open for other things that are important, like relationships, like your relationship with God first, and then your relationship with others, of course. There's an old song by uh, Ricky Skaggs, a kind of bluegrass musician, and it's called The Simple Life. He says, a simple life is a life for me, a man and his wife and his family, and the Lord up above who knows I'm trying to live a difficult life in a difficult time, to live a simple life in a difficult time. The simple life is holding on to work with one hand, but then grasping with the other hand those things that are really important, like enjoyment of the benefits from your work. Um, developing a friendship, serving the Lord. But if we hold tightly onto our work with both hands and put all of our energy into trying to squeeze everything out of that, it amounts to nothing but futility. So work for contentment. Know when it is enough. Hold work with just one hand and leave the other hand open for important things in life. So he goes from talking about how to balance our work, not being too over uh, working and like a workaholic and not being lazy, to uh, talking about how to help others with our work or helping just about the fact that we should help others with our work. And so he talks about in verse seven and eight, sharing our wealth. He says, I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There's that phrase. Both words that are important in this book, vanity, something he doesn't understand on, on this earth. And verse 8 is the what we would call the parable of the lone man, parable of the lonely man. He says, there is one alone without companion. Now, the word companion there isn't necessarily referring to a mate or a spouse. It just means, it, literally, it's a second, second person. There's somebody who's going through life without a best friend a BFF, a buddy, without a partner. He's by himself because he's devoted himself to, so much to his work, this lonely laborer. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. So here's a man who has no other important, significant person, persons in his life, not even family. And he, and he never pauses to ask himself, uh, how, uh, why am I, who's, who am I working for? And it becomes a, a lament. Who am I working for? Who am I working so hard for? And the author says, this also is vanity or meaningless. It just doesn't make sense that he would work so hard like that. 
And of course, the answer is there's no one he's working for but himself. No one to share his success and joys in life with except himself. You might remember uh, the story of Scrooge and Christmas. This is a perfect example of the lonely laborer that comes to my mind when I read this passage. You have Ebenezer Scrooge, who is very, very wealthy, and yet he has no friends. He uses people. He has no, no family. And he's just working and driven by uh, greed and ambition for himself. And he never knows when to say this is enough. He doesn't know how to quit. He doesn't know how to slow down. Of course, until life changes on Christmas Eve for him and he experiences a Christmas miracle. But what we see is that it's very possible that we can work and work and work without developing significant relationships. So uh, we're working for wealth or success or ambition at the expense of relationship. We're putting things or popularity over people. He calls it here a grave misfortune in the New King James Version. This phrase is used only in Ecclesiastes and eight times there it's used. And it has the idea of it's a miserable task. When we're not working to help someone else, it's just a miserable task. And that's all it amounts to. So help others with your work. Uh, and then in verses 9 through 12, I think what he's trying to tell us is that we should share our lives. Learn to share your life. In verse 9, a very well-known passage, he says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. And if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. This passage is simply telling us that if we want to survive in this dog-eat-dog -dog world this and make a little bit more sense of life and make work a little bit easier, we need to team up with someone. In fact, if we can team up with three, it's even better. There's an old Swedish proverb that says, shared joy is double joy. Shared sorrow is half a sorrow. When we want to celebrate a success, it's better to have people around us that we can celebrate with. When we're burdened with something sorrowful, it's good to have someone around that we can share that with also. This is a good word, I think, to many men who tend to be lonely because they have this independence, I can do it myself attitude, and they fail to develop relationships. Frankly, I see women a little bit better at relationships sometimes than men. They're more of a social creature. Uh, but this is a good word for men. To, uh, to develop relationships around you, to make your work a little bit easier, to share both the joys and the pains of what you're going through. Another, another movie that comes to mind at this point is the movie that you may have seen called Bucket List. And in that movie, Jack Nicholas plays a very, very wealthy man, but a very, very selfish, ambitious, and greedy man who has no relationships in his life or meaningful family relationships even in his life. And yet he befriends uh, the character betrayed by Morgan Freeman and uh, becomes friends of a sort with him. And uh, they go around the world um, doing things together on their bucket list. And at the end of the movie, of course, he makes friends with him and finds uh, a little bit deeper meaning in life. 
A richer life comes from developing relationships with people. When God created man, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, he said it's not good that man should be alone. And of course, in that context, he's speaking about marriage uh, for a man and a woman. But it's true in many other contexts, too. When it comes to our work, it's not good that man should be alone. And he talks about having a, a partner for, for the difficult times, somebody that can pick you up. And it's even better, he says, if you can have a third person involved because you become even stronger by virtue of having that third relationship. When we think of famous friendships in the Bible, we think of Jonathan and David who held one another up, who shared joys and burdens together. We think of Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas who comforted him. Or Paul, we could say, had a threefold strand because he was so close with Timothy. And, uh, and it made his ministry all the stronger. And so develop those relationships and share, learn to share your life with others. If not just one person, how about two or more? But make sure that at least that third strand or that second strand even is Jesus Christ himself. That would be your most important relationship. He will pick us up when we're down and he will rejoice when we rejoice. There's a lot of benefits to having that kind of partnership through life and in work. We call it teamwork. Uh, we can learn from other people and by watching them and how they do things, and they can learn a lot from us that they need, need to know. I've just finished a book and I sent it to the editor and she looked it over after I had proofread it probably 20 times. She looked it over and found all kinds of little things. That's what editors do. Used to hurt my feelings, but now I'm saying, hey, Thank God for good editors. They make me better. Two is better than one. And others can learn from me, probably not from my grammar, but uh, uh, I learn more from other people. But others have something to learn from you as well. When people work together, we also find it stimulates uh, creativity and uh, encouragement. Um, you know, we, we can brainstorm things together if there's a problem bounce ideas off of each other. And then there's always the benefit of the division of labor so that you're not doing everything alone, that you're working alongside of somebody else and they're bearing part of the, the uh, burden of the labor that's involved. There's accountability so that we can keep track of one another and one another's progress. If it's a team effort, it makes work much easier. I've been able to accomplish a certain amount of things through Grace Life Ministries. I say I, and it looks like a one-person ministry, but really, there's a whole team of people I rely on. I rely on others for my website and the technical uh, knowledge there. I rely on others to handle and process the finances. I have a board of directors that you don't see. I have um, uh, talented graphic designers uh, and people who process um, uh, shipments, uh, people who are working on podcasts to get them ready for broadcast. There's a whole team of people. Uh, that you don't see, but it makes this ministry stronger. Develop those relationships around you by sharing your life with others. Don't hold on to work with both hands so tightly that one hand is not open to a new relationship. In verses 13 through 16, he goes on, I think, to tell us that we need to curb our ambition if we're working just for the sake of work or selfish ambition. In verse 13, 
Well, we we well, you looked at what I said was the parable of the the uh, lonely laborer. Now we have a parable of um, a foolish king and youth. He says, "Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king, who will be admonished no more, for he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom." I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who came afterward would not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So what he's talking about here is he, he notices that there's this poor youth and, and I, evidently he becomes an old king. But he's so... Uh, enraptured by his own authority and power, he listens to no one anymore. Uh, he's not accountable to anybody. He takes no one's advice. That itself is foolishness. Verse 14 talks about someone who comes out of prison to be a king. And he goes from rags to riches. He was born poor in the kingdom, and yet now he finds himself king. Is he talking about the history of this king in verse 13, or is he talking about somebody who succeeds him? Commentators disagree. And there's no real clear answer. I tend to think it's talking about somebody who comes after the king, a younger man, in this rags to riches story. But it doesn't affect the wisdom that he wants us to learn. And so he talks about everybody who's walking under the sun, uh, and they're with this second youth, and they stand in his place. So this, this youth who becomes king has everybody under his influence. He's very popular with them, in fact. But he says, even though there's no end to all the people in his kingdom, later on, afterwards, some people aren't going to rejoice in him, he says in verse 16. And that leads to another situation of vanity and grasping for the wind. So here's the story of somebody who has great power and great popularity, but popularity is a slippery slope, isn't it? Ask any quarterback on Monday morning. He didn't have a good game, what people think of him then, before and after the game. Or any politician will find that popularity is a slippery slope. So selfish ambition that builds ourselves up uh, can easily disappear, where we go from hero to zero, or from the penthouse to the outhouse. It can happen quickly. So don't put all your eggs in the basket of financial success, work success, personal popularity prestige, because it can easily disappear. There'll always be people who will criticize you and be willing to cut you down. Curb your ambition. Seek influence, but not power. And, and if you rise to the top, be sure to pull others up with you or push them up higher than you are. Don't work for, for work's sake or for selfish sake or for selfish ambition. Curb your ambition to help other people. Well, here's a chapter where verses 4 through 16, the author is looking at work and wondering, you know, why do we work and who are we working for and what do we gain by it? If you're working today in a job and you're employed or you have some meaningful vocation, thank God for it. The Bible says earlier in Ecclesiastes that that is a gift from God and we should rejoice in that. If you're not working because of circumstances, whatever, 
or you've had a, or if you've had a career that you can be thankful for, but not working now, maybe you can look at work in a little different way with a little more meaningfulness to it and see that it's not an end in itself, but it's a way that we can help other people. Who are we working for? Is it just yourself or is it for other people? Or is it for God? The Bible says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. We don't need to work out of a worry to meet our own needs. Put God first in everything and he'll supply those needs. Learn to balance with one hand work and with the other hand relationships, especially that relationship with God. These are wise words coming from Solomon, the king, who lived a long life and saw many things good and bad. He tried to figure it out, but he comes to the conclusion that work for work's sake, work for selfish ambition's sake, work for uh, wealth's sake is futility and grasping for the wind. Know when to say enough is enough. Develop meaningful relationships. Have you reached out in all the extra time that you might have right now? to a relationship or a person that you have not uh, spoken with in a while. My wife and I have been able to do that and just catch up with people. And it's been very nice, a very nice experience. Have you uh, used the time perhaps to mentor someone, either maybe not in person, but even by phone or by email these days or by uh, video technology? Take some time out from your work, from the work mentality, we should say, to work on the relationships around you. You'll find meaning there and life will not seem so futile. Well, let me pray as we close. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the word of God that reminds us that there are things more important than our work that you've given us to do. Work can be a blessing and we know that now more than ever. And we pray for those who are out of work and looking for work, that they might find meaningful work. But we pray also for those who work or have worked all our lives, that we would see the significance of that. That it's not just money. It's about people. It's about using our rewards for the sake of, of a people, helping them, and spreading the gospel, your gospel. So help us to do that by the grace of God. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.